Hello, friends. Welcome to episode five of Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for Jane Austen lovers and nerds who love bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. Together, we are reading Austen's published works one chapter at a time. We'll discuss the major themes running through each of them. We'll also take time to talk about Austen criticism, her earliest fans, her place as an author in the 21st century, and as much nerddom as we can get away with. Today, we're going to read Chapter 5 of Sense and Sensibility. Now that we're a few episodes in, I thought that it's a good time to begin the discussion on Jane's family. In Episodes 1 and 2, we learned a bit about the Austen family. I talked about her mother and father, Cassandra and George, her sister, also named Cassandra, and a few of her six brothers. Her brothers are James, Charles, Edward, Francis, George, and Henry. Yep, that's six. Now I wanted to delve deeper into their lives and learn about how each of them influenced Jane's life in writing. Today, we'll begin with Jane's oldest brother, James. James Austen was born at the Dean Parsonage on February 13, 1765. He was a full 10 years older than Jane. Mrs. Austen considered James to be the creative and literary one in the family. He spent his free time writing and producing home theatrics in the parlor and barn with his siblings and family friends. When he was 14, he was sent to Oxford, where he had a place at St. John's College thanks to his mother's family connections. His parents intended for him to follow in his father's footsteps and become an Anglican minister. James was a charming young man. In a letter to Cassandra, which we read in episode one, Jane wrote that a ball is nothing without him. In 1786, James went on a grand tour of Europe. He visited Spain and Holland, as well as his cousin, and I'm going to butcher this name, Eliza de Fulid, estate in Guienne, France. James was ordained in December of 1787 as a deacon at St. David's Cathedral in Pembrokeshire and began serving as a curate for Stoke Charity in Hampshire. While he was there, he and his brother Henry began publishing a weekly literary periodical called The Loiterer. The Loiterer was basically a showcase of James's writing talent, and it was targeted at Oxford students, and it was distributed throughout London by Jane's future publisher, Thomas Egerton. The Loiterer is best remembered for one letter published in issue number nine under the nom de plume Sophia Sentiment. This letter was very likely written by a teenage Jane, I've added a link to that letter in the show notes. I will read a little bit of it now. Sir, I write this to inform you that you are very much out of my good graces and that, if you do not mend your manners, I shall soon drop your acquaintance. You must know, sir, I am a great reader and not one to mention some hundred volumes of novels and plays which, in the last two summers, actually got through all the entertaining papers of our most celebrated periodical writers, from the Tatler to the Spectator to the Microcosm and the Ola Podrida. Indeed, I love a periodical work beyond anything, especially those in which one meets with a great many stories, and where the papers are not too long. I assure you my heart beat with joy when I first heard of your publication, and I immediately sent for and have taken in ever since." 
I am sorry, however, to say, but really, sir, I think it is the stupidest work of the kind I ever saw, not but that some of the papers are well written, but then your subjects are so badly chosen that they never interest one. Only conceive, in eight papers, not one sentimental story about love and honor and all that. Not one eastern tale full of bashas and hermits, pyramids and mosques. No, not even an allegory or dream have yet made their appearance in the loiterer. Why, my dear sir, what do you think we care about the way in which Oxford men spend their time and money, we who have enough to do to spend our own? For my part, I never, but once, was at Oxford in my life, and I am sure I never wish to go there again. They dragged me through so many dismal chapels, dusty libraries, and greasy halls that it gave me the vapors for two days afterwards. As for your last paper, indeed, the story was good enough, but there was no love and no lady in it, at least no young lady, and I wonder how you could be guilty of such an omission, especially when it could have been so easily avoided. Instead of retiring to Yorkshire, he might have fled into France, and there, you know, you might have made him fall in love with a French paisan who might have turned out to be some great person. Or you might have let him set fire to a convent and carry off a nun, whom he might afterwards have converted, or anything of that kind, just to have created a little bustle and made the story more interesting. Uh, so there's Jane being her sarcastic, biting self. And that letter really fits in with uh, the current story we're reading, Sense and Sensibility, when it's talking about passions and sensibilities and all of these romantic notions and novels that someone like Marianne would have read. In the book Jane Austen at Home, which I have quoted from before, but it is so good, I, I definitely recommend this book, Lucy Worsley write that Jane's relationship with James was slightly vexed. Everyone thought that he was the most literary member of the family, a composer of essays and poetry, and this persisted even after his sister became published. In this role of the family's author, he is often given credit for having encouraged and inspired his sister as a writer. Worsley conjectures that James may have been jealous of his sister's success as a published author, but that Jane continued to work hard to ensure she couldn't be criticized for shirking her most important lady duties, whatever those may be. Interestingly, though, James claimed not to like novels and wrote diatribes against them, even after his sister was published. But this opinion wasn't unusual in Georgian and Regency England, as novels were considered feminine and potentially degrading. So think about that when you hear Henry Tilney's opinion of how wonderful novels are in Northanger Abbey. In 1792, as a curate in Overton, the next parish over from his father's parish, James met and married Anne Matthew, an heiress whose father, General Edward Matthew, may have been the source for the snobby and pretentious General Tilney in Northanger Abbey. Anne and James had one daughter named Jane, but Anne died unexpectedly in 1795. James married again in 1797 to Mary Lloyd, the sister of Jane's BFF, Martha Lloyd, but not before he considered marrying his widowed cousin, Eliza. James and Mary had two children, a boy named James Edward and a girl named Caroline. 
James Edward Austin grew up to be his aunt's first biographer. In 1801, when their father retired and moved his wife and daughters to Bath, James became the rector of Steventon and moved his family into the rectory. Now, the life of a country rector was very different from the wild times of his youth in Oxford, but it is said that he enjoyed his library in the woods around the rectory. After Mr. Austin died, James was the first brother to offer his mother and sister 50 pounds a year to support them. When Jane, Cassandra, and their mother later moved to Southampton, James and the family visited quite often. After one of their holiday get-togethers, Jane noticed a change in their brother. The company of so good and clever a man ought to be gratifying in itself, but his chat seems all forced, his opinions on many points too much copied from his wife. In 1808, James earned about £1,100 a year, which is really good for a curate, and was able to own and care for three riding horses. As he grew older, he had fits of melancholy and sadness, what we today would probably call depression, and this became even more pronounced as he aged. James suffered from digestive problems and possibly gout for many years, and he was actually too ill to attend Jane's funeral at Winchester Cathedral, but he did write a poetic obituary for her. But to her family alone, her real and genuine worth was known. Yes, they whose lot it was to prove her sisterly, her filial love, they saw her ready still to share the labors of domestic care. It doesn't mention Jane's books or her writing, her personality, nothing. Just that she was always ready to share the labors of domestic care. So maybe James was a little jealous of Jane's success when his own writing career never really went anywhere. But it, this really does show that the family believed that Jane's worth was centered in the domestic sphere. James didn't outlive his sister by long, and he died December 13th, 1819, at the age of 54. Now let's get back to the book. Last episode, Eleanor and Marianne were discussing Edward's attractiveness and traits. Eleanor popped the marriage balloon, much to Marianne's and her mother's disappointment, and voiced her doubts about Edward's attraction to her. Fanny discovered this mutual attraction and takes the first opportunity to tell Mrs. Dashwood about her mother's great expectations for Edward and how a poor girl who attempts to draw him in would be very unwelcome. Mrs. Dashwood tells Fanny exactly where she can go and how to get there and decides it's time to leave Norland. And this is the point where Mrs. D gets a letter from a distant cousin offering her and her daughters a cottage near his home in Devonshire. Mrs. D impulsively takes up the offer, writing an acceptance letter and then letting Eleanor read it. But Eleanor agrees with her mother, sacrificing her budding romance with Edward for the sake of her family. Now on to chapter five. No sooner was her answer dispatched than Mrs. Dashwood indulged herself in the pleasure of announcing to her son-in-law and his wife that she was provided with an house and should incommode them no longer than till everything were ready for her inhabiting it. They heard her with surprise. Mrs. John Dashwood said nothing, but her husband civilly hoped that she would not be settled far from Norland. She had great satisfaction in replying that she was going into Devonshire. 
Edward turned hastily towards her on hearing this, and in a voice of surprise and concern, which required no explanation to her, repeated, "'Devonshire, are you indeed going there? So far from hence! And what part of it?' She explained the situation. It was within four miles northward of Exeter. "'It is but a cottage,' she continued, "'but I hope to see many of my friends in it. A room or two can easily be added, and if my friends find no difficulty in traveling so far to see me, I am sure I will find none in accommodating them. She concluded with a kind invitation to Mr. and Mrs. John Dashwood to visit her at Barton, and to Edward she gave one with still greater affection. So Mrs. D. finally gets to announce that she doesn't have to take it any more from Fanny, but it's entirely problematic. What happens if this cottage falls through? What happens if it's not up to what they what they need? Mrs. D and her daughters would be in a real bind because she's just told Fanny where to go and now they wouldn't have any place to stay. And while well, giving Edward an invitation in the presence of his sister gives Mrs. D a lot of pleasure, it puts him in a really awkward position because he likely knows that his sister disapproves of his interest in Eleanor. But she wants Fanny to know just how much she disregards her disapproval of Eleanor and Edward's potential relationship. And now look at Edward. He is totally shocked. The narrator and the characters have all been describing him as really calm and soft-spoken, but there's a big contrast now. He is almost shouting, he's exclaiming. And then he asks, what part? What part of Devonshire? It's a huge distance away. Why does it matter which part? It doesn't really make a difference in his separation from Eleanor. So maybe he's asking for another reason? It's, it's very subtle, but Edward is starting to have a background and some interior motives that we, the reader, don't know about. And he says, so far from hence... So how far is Barton Cottage from Norland? Well, I did some research. The Jane Austen Society of North America has maps for all of Jane's novels on the website, but I couldn't find one with both Barton and Norland. The map I did find puts Norland in central Sussex, which is south of London and north of Brighton. And Mrs. D says Barton is about four miles north of Exeter. So I guessed that the distance is about 190 to 200 miles. In modern times, that's about three and a half, four hours by car. But imagine doing that by horse-drawn carriage. That would take so long. The annotated Sense and Sensibility says that the trip would take about two days. But I am guessing it might even take three days, maybe four, depending on the weather. It's a long drive. So Mrs. D rents the house for a year and they start to pack and purge. Eleanor has convinced Mrs. D to get rid of the horses and now to sell the carriage. Mrs. D would have liked to have kept the carriage and rented horses when she needed, and this would have significantly expanded her social circle in Devonshire. But carriages, like cars, were really costly to maintain. 
Have you ever driven on really bad roads after a hard winter? Where I live in New England, you can lose an entire wheel or maybe the entire car in a pothole during the spring thaw. So I can sympathize with maintaining a carriage that has to drive on really poor dirt roads. Carriages broke down all the time. At the beginning of Sanditon, Mr. and Mrs. Parker are waylaid by a terrible carriage accident where they meet Charlotte. And horses, although they were an important mode of transportation, were really expensive to keep and to feed. So no horses and no carriage for Mrs. D in her new life. Eleanor also convinces her mother that they only need three servants, two maids and a man. Now, an adult male servant would have had a significantly higher salary than a female servant. I went down some rabbit holes looking for Georgian servant salary information, and I really didn't find a lot. But I did find a book written by two servants in 1815, which is about 25 years later than Sense and Sensibility is set, but it was the closest I could find. This book is called The Complete Servant, being a practical guide to the peculiar duties and business of all descriptions of servants by Samuel and Sarah Adams. Samuel and Sarah Adams were servants for 50 years. Samuel began as a footboy and rose to be a steward, while Sarah began as a maid of all work, which is the lowest of the low, and rose to be a housekeeper on a very large estate. Anyways, the book includes a couple of tables, which are really helpful. They show how many servants a family should have based on income and number of family members. And according to this book, a widow with three children earning 500 pounds a year, which is what Mrs. D has, should have three maids and a boy, which is pretty close to what Eleanor and Mrs. D agree to. The book also includes salaries for each type of servant, so in 1815, a housemaid would have earned between 14 and 15 guineas a year. A guinea was 21 shillings, or about a pound. A footman would have earned between 20 and 24 guineas a year. But if he was hired as a butler, he could have earned up to 50 guineas a year. So these three are shipped off to Devonshire, and they must have really liked Mrs. D to be willing to leave New Orleans where all their friends and all of their families probably were. They went there well ahead of the family to unpack the possessions and prep the house for the Dashwoods' arrival. So Mrs. D keeps the linens, the china, and the plate, as Fanny said she would in Chapter 2, and her books, and Marianne's pianoforte. Pianoforte is actually the full name of the instrument. It means loud-soft because a piano can be played loudly and softly. And Fanny, of course, is very upset that a poor family like the Dashwoods have anything that she might covet, such as Marianne's piano. And what about John's promise to help the family when they move? This is what he had negotiated himself down to. He went from offering them £3,000 to helping them move. But, you know, even that would have been hugely helpful because he probably has wagons and carts and he could have offered their use to Mrs. D. That would have been really helpful for such a long journey. Mr. John Dashwood told his mother again and again how exceedingly sorry he was that she had taken an house at such a distance from Norland as to prevent his being of any service to her in removing her furniture. He really felt conscientiously vexed on the occasion. 
for the very exertion to which he had limited the performance of his promise to his father was by this arrangement rendered impractical. The furniture was all sent round by water. So John's not going to help her move. At least he feels guilty about not helping, but he's not making any attempt to offer any other form of assistance. So he's still not looking good. Now, all of the furniture was sent round by water, and this would have been a lot cheaper than overland transportation. And since both Sussex and Devonshire are on the southern coast of England, it's really not a long journey by boat. So now everything is shipped. The house is already furnished. She doesn't have anything to wait for. She can take it immediately. And the Dashwood women are ready to go. So let's get to those awkward goodbyes. Her eagerness to be gone from Norland was preserved from diminution by the evident satisfaction of her daughter-in-law in the prospect of her removal. A satisfaction which was but feebly attempted to be concealed under a cold invitation to her to defer her departure. Now was the time when her son-in-law's promise to his father might with particular propriety be fulfilled. Since he had neglected to do it on first coming to the estate, their quitting his house might be looked on as the most suitable period for its accomplishment. But Mrs. Dashwood began shortly to give over every hope of the kind, and to be convinced from the general drift of his discourse that his assistance extended no farther than their maintenance for six months at Norland. He so frequently talked of the increasing expenses of housekeeping and of the perpetual demands upon his purse, which a man of any consequence in the world was beyond calculation exposed to, that he seemed rather to stand in need of more money himself than to have any design of giving money away. Okay, either John and Fanny have been spending like crazy since they inherited Norland, or John is just cheap, and he's being even more greedy and selfish than we thought. And the narrator said he was ill-disposed and cold-hearted and all of those other things in chapter one. So he really is that terrible. Now that Mrs. D has nothing to wait around for and nothing to lose, it doesn't take long for Barton Cottage to be ready for the Dashwoods. But Marianne still has to say goodbye. Many were the tears shed by them in their last adieus to a place so much beloved. Dear, dear Norland, said Marianne as she wandered alone before the house on the last evening of their being there. When shall I cease to regret you? When learn to feel a home elsewhere? Oh, happy house! Could you know what I suffer in now viewing you from this spot, from whence perhaps I may view you no more? And you, ye well-known trees, but you will continue the same— no leaf will decay because we are removed, nor any branch become motionless, although we can observe you no longer. No, you will continue the same, unconscious of the pleasure or the regret you occasion, and insensible of any change in those who walk under your shade. But who will remain to enjoy you? Oh, sweet romantic Marianne. Norland is her romantic ideal of nature. The annotated Sense and Sensibility says that Marianne's speech replicates some of the speeches given by other romantic heroines of the time, such as the gothic heroines of Anne Radcliffe. In Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Adolfo, the heroine Emily would make these really long speeches about the beauty of a natural scene. 
And if you haven't read Mysteries of Adelpho, it is a very long, sometimes tedious book, but it really gives you a sense of where a character like Marion is coming from. And it's really helpful in the future when we read Northanger Abbey. It really helps you understand exactly what Jane is making fun of in that novel. But here's an example of Emily's speech from chapter one of The Mysteries of Adelpho. But hark, here comes the sweeping sound over the woodtops. Now it dies away. How solemn the stillness that succeeds. Now the breeze swells again. It is like the voice of some supernatural being, the voice of the spirit of the woods that watches over them by night. Ah, what light is yonder? But it is gone, and now it gleams again, near the root of that large chestnut. Is Marianne's speech a parody of those by heroines like Emily? I don't think it's that simple. I think Marianne's speech is reminding the reader of her romantic character and her sensibilities to nature. But it might just be a rib at some of these novels of sensibilities, like the gothic novel. Well, the Dashwoods are finally on their way to their new home, leaving Norland and Edward behind. We'll find out what's in store for them next time. Thank you for listening to Ends in Sensibility. This podcast was written and produced by me, Casey Meserve. You can write me at entsandsensibility at gmail.com and follow Ends in Sensibility on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. You can also leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Check out our website, Ents and Sensibility, for our episode notes, a list of books and references mentioned on the podcast, and more. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll visit again soon.